It is good to be with you this morning, and I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah chapter 13. Let us begin reading at verse 1. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all the foreigners from Israel. Verse 10. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and singers who performed the service had gone away each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. So all Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, the wild wine and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, Padai of the Levites. In addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zachor, the son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable. And it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O oh my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. Verse 23. In those days, I also saw the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them, pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to the sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding in these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the farm women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoiah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they had defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we come before you this morning. And we would ask, O oh Lord, that your Holy Spirit might speak to us today. Father, we come in our frailty, we come in our weakness, and we recognize, Lord, that anything good that will happen today will be the result of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, as we are here and we are asking your help, we pray, O oh God, that you might speak to us by your word and that you might speak to us, Lord, in a way that we would remember and it would change our lives. We ask this, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first question I have for you this morning is, what does this sound like? A hint, it was something I talked about like the last time I was here. It's Malachi, right? 
it's the problem in the generation that followed Nehemiah's uh, time that people were not doing right by God's temple. They were not doing right by the priesthood, that there were uh, mixed marriages, that there were relationships that God did not condone, and the people were falling into those traps. They were falling into those traps, and they had uh, were being corrected by God for that very thing. So what's striking to me as I look at Nehemiah chapter 13 this morning with you is that Malachi is written at some point after this. And Malachi is correcting a spiritual problem that Nehemiah had previously corrected. And when we started our series in Malachi back in January, we were looking at one of the things that was sort of an undercurrent within the entire book was the idea that we as believers are prone to spiritual drift. That as Christians, that we are not exempt from this phenomenon that we see repeated over and over and over again in the Old Testament. That over and over and over again, we see the people of God in a certain situation being corrected for their sin in that situation. There's a, a repentance, there's a course change, And then sometime later, they fall back into the same pattern of unbelief, idolatry, and disobedience. So when we come to chapter, Nehemiah chapter 13, and we see what goes on here, we ask ourselves, how can we prevent this from happening? Now, when you look at this chapter and you put it in the context of the revival that God was doing in Nehemiah's day, there are certain things that we can pull from this and we can apply to our own situation. But the trouble is, is that when we think about Nehemiah and the circumstances that he was facing, there are some things that are hard for us to kind of translate into our experience. For example, for example, the idea that, that, that God would expel the Ammonite, the Moabite, that they should never enter the assembly of God. Now we think about that and we say to ourselves, well, how does that relate to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? What we know is we understand that in that day and in that time period, there was a national identity of God's people. They were a national people and the corruption and the influence of the ungodly was going to be like a fence. God was going to put a fence around them to prevent them from being polluted as it were by their neighbors. But what do we find in the new Testament? What do we find as we get to the new Testament? We find in the new Testament, there's a different paradigm. There's a different paradigm. And let's face it. There have probably been many times in history where people have taken this episode in the life of Nehemiah and they've misapplied it. And what they basically said is that as believers, we're not of any contact or any relationship with unbelievers. I mean, look what what God told Nehemiah to do. Cast them out, get rid of them. And so I'm sure at different points in church history, there are people who took this and said, well, you know what, as 
as God's people, we need to distance ourselves and isolate ourselves and cut ourselves off from the ungodly. But I don't think that that's the correct application. I think when I look at this passage and I, look, and I think about what God is saying here is that God was going to show first how much privilege there was to actually be part of the community of God. I mean, why were the Ammonites and the Moabites even hanging out with the Jews? Why were they even bothering being there, except perhaps that there was something about the temple and there was something about this people that gravitated toward that. But God is saying, no, no, there's no way for them in. There's an isolation, there's a separation, and it's a privilege to be a part of the family of God. And that makes what Jesus did all the more remarkable. That when Jesus came, John would write in the first chapter of John's gospel that he came to his own and his own received him not. But to those who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God even to those who believe in his name. And of course, if you haven't already, you probably should underline verse two, right? The last sentence, however, our God turned the curse into a blessing. And when we think about what that means, we think about the application of that in our own lives. And we think about how that when the enemies of God and when the when Balaam is at his worst trying to uh, work some way to, to undermine the people of God without actually violating it and without actually trying to, you know, that whole game he plays with the king of Moab in the Old Testament, that when in the end, there was a hired prophet who is to bring a curse, that curse comes out of his mouth as a blessing. And when I think about that, when I think about the impact of that particular lesson, right, there are two things that we can apply right away. The first one is in our own experience as believers, we understand, at least intellectually, that there are many times in our life where there are going to be enemies arrayed against us, there are going to be forces at work against us, that are going to try and undermine us and undermine our walk with God. And God turns those things into a blessing. Blessing. But more importantly, right? We go to the book of Galatians, and what do we find there? Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so in this stream of consciousness with you for just a moment, think about what God does, right? First, we see that there is a separation. There is this distance between the people of God, and there is this distance between those who are in the family of God and those who are out. 
And why is that? Because there is a curse. They tried to curse God's people. They were driven out because of the fact that they were the enemies of God. And then Nehemiah says that God turned that curse into a blessing. And it's the very ability of God to take the curse and make it a blessing that then allows people like the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Gentiles to actually walk in and become part of the family of God. That is actually the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. that makes it possible for anyone who receives him to receive the blessings of being a part of the family of God. So when we look at Nehemiah 13, what do we find? What we find, we find spiritual drift. Why? Because... (laughs) Nehemiah has to go back to the king. He's not there for a period of time. And while he's gone, the people just kind of fall apart spiritually. We find that the tithing stops and he has to restore it. We find that the Sabbath stops and it has to be restored, the the sanctity of the Sabbath. And again, he attacks the issues of the mixed marriages. Now, I have a confession for you. I forgot that I was supposed to preach on Nehemiah 13. I'm like, Nehemiah 13, that's not the message I prepared. And I'm like, I looked at my email. And then I saw the text from Paul. Oh, Oh, my bad. But then I thought to myself, well, it sure sounds a whole lot like Malachi. So this is the Holy Spirit. I'm going to make a bridge between Nehemiah 13 and what the Lord laid on my heart this morning to say to you. You see, because when you look at this situation, it's the same situation in Malachi. It's the same situation in Nehemiah 13. That the people of God wander. And they're influenced by the world. And their children are at risk. And they're involved in relationships that undermine their faith. And what is the answer? Because those generic descriptions that I just gave you, you know they apply today, right? They're they're just right here and now with us. That there are enemies, that there are things that are trying to undermine our faith. There are things that are going on that threaten our children. There are all kinds of situations that are we we prone to spiritual drift? Anybody here want to raise a hand? (laughs) Like, uh, you know, how often have we started over 
whatever the over is, over in our devotions, over in our prayer life, over in, in our attendance at church, coming to the meeting and being part of the family of God, connecting with people. How many times have we had to like reboot ourselves and bring it into the 20th century? And as I thought about this and I think about the challenges we are facing, it, it struck me, it struck me that there are three words, there are three words that make all the difference in our lives. You know, you might be sitting here and thinking, what would those three words be? Well, I want to read to you a little quick story. Max Lucado, in his book, Six Hours on Friday, recounts a visit he made to a cemetery in San Antonio, Texas. This is one of those places where history stands still and the life stories of over 200 people are captured in the final words engraved on their tombstones. He wrote, I stood on the same spot where a mother wept on a cold day some eight decades past. The tombstones read simply, Baby Bolt born and died December 10th, 1910. 18-year-old Harry Ferguson was laid to rest in 1883 under these words, Sleep sweetly, tired young pilgrim. I wondered what wearied him so. And then I saw it. It was chiseled into a tombstone on the northern end of the cemetery, the stone that marks the destination of the body of Grace Llewellyn Smith. No date of birth was listed, no date of death, just the names of her two husbands. And this epitaph sleeps, but not rests. Loved, but was loved not. Tried to please, but pleased not. Died as she lived alone. Sleeps, but rests not. Loved, but was loved not. Tried to please, but pleased not. Died as she lived alone. And I think about three words that change everything, right? Now, immediately, what three words come to your mind? Does anybody want to know? I would say like, oh, the way the words, I love you, right? I love you. Hearing those words can make the difference. How many spouses go through their lives wondering, wondering when they're going to hear that from their spouse? Or how many children grow up in a home where that expression is never, ever articulated in a meaningful way? And you think about how those three words might make the difference in the world. But when you think about those three words, the problem with those three words is that they can be rooted in sentimentality. They can be rooted in emotion. It really depends on the I who says it, right? I love you. Who's actually saying it? And of course, it really depends on how you define the word love in that sentence. How many, how many children have been abused and, and have been suffering from physical and emotional abuse and their parents say to them after the beating or after the neglect or after the abuse, I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry, I love you. So as much as we might want to be gravitating to those three words and say, hey, those are the words that really make the difference. There's a problem with those three words. I have a different suggestion for you. 
And the three words that make all the difference in the world are the three words, he is risen. He is risen. And you see, when we look at this, whether we're looking at Nehemiah or whether we're looking at Ephesians or whether we're looking at the Gospels, those three words make all the difference in the world. Why? Okay, let's take a moment and think about this, right? Why would a group of non-Jews, why would a group of Gentiles ever be reading the Jewish Bible? Why would you ever care about Nehemiah and the story of the Jews and the Jewish temple thousands of years ago if he is not risen? In fact, why would you even be here this morning? Why would you go through the effort of getting dressed, getting up, logging on to Zoom, And be present in some capacity if he is not risen. And when we look at this and we think about Malachi, we think about Nehemiah, we think about our spiritual drift, the key to me right now in my life and thinking about this is the challenge of what does the resurrection mean to me right now in the moment, in the present? See, the thing that the law struggled with, as Paul would say, the law was weak through the flesh. So the restoration of the Sabbath and the restoration of the tithe and the restoration of the priesthood was always going to be inherently flawed. Why? Because it had no power. It had no power. It could tell you what you must do. It could tell you what you should do. It could tell you what you should not do. But the thing the law could not do was give you the heart and the soul and the will to do it. What Paul said in Romans 8 was that after laying out the spiritual condition of the human race, Jew and Gentile, lost and condemned under the righteousness of God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there's not one person righteous, no, not one. He goes on to explain that we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 8, he says this. He says, there's no condemnation now. There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He is Risen. Two weeks ago, we gathered together. We celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last week, the Eastern Orthodox community celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the thing that must 
be in our mind is that the historical event of Christ's resurrection has enormous ramifications for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what it tells us is this, first, that our sins are forgivable. Great is the distance between us and God. Great is the distance between the human race and the creator of the universe. But God turned the curse into a blessing. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross means our sins are able to be forgiven. When you think about the idea of what Christ did, the significance of that event is because of those three words, he is risen. Why? Because Paul said it. He said, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. My life, no longer are my sins forgivable. My life, the life that I was meant to live, is now livable. Paul said this, that he was pursuing, he was pressing on, that I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings, and the power of his resurrection, that I may be made conformable to his death. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, power of his resurrection. been wrestling a lot recently as an educator in New Jersey. A lot of people have been following the news and what's been going on in Florida and, and, the, and the struggles that are going on down there and the legislature that's been passed and the, you know, the very not labeled correctly, don't say gay bill that's been passed in Florida. But what is not so known is the change in New Jersey curriculum core standards here. So if you were to say, um, hey, you know, Florida went in one direction, New Jersey's gone in the complete opposite direction. And it's been an, an exercise, you know, it's been a real struggle because what New Jersey, the government department of education has said is, is that you have to celebrate, you have to commemorate, you have to identify the contributions of the LGBTQ plus community, K-12. You just got to do it. And unknown to most parents is there's no opt out. Had a lawyer tell it to us in school seminar twice, not once, not twice. There's no opt out for parents. If you don't like the curriculum, it's sorry, you just, there's no way that you can't opt out of it. 
And so there's a lot of consternation. And my son was telling me he's got a friend of his. She's a teacher in a public school system, and she is now being ostracized by her peers. She's getting all kinds of pressure uh, from the administration because she's not comfortable. She's expressed her discomfort in celebrating these issues. And in my study, research, examination of some of these issues, I came across a testimony of a young woman. And it just reminded me of something. Because in this young woman's testimony, she talked about how, as a child growing up, she was struggling with same-sex attraction. Check that box. And as she was maturing, she didn't know how to deal with that. And there was all kinds of drama in her life. And she approached that solution by transitioning. Check that box. And she went hardcore, not to irreversible surgeries, but she showed pictures of herself. And I'm just going to use a colloquial. She was a dude. You would never have thought. That, that this person was a girl. Never thought about it. But still struggling with feelings of inferiority, of acceptance, of sense of who, who she was, and, and totally identifying as a man, totally identifying as, as, the, as a man, new name, new identity, the whole nine yards. And she was, he, at a gym, working out when a girl walked up to him and said, her, would you come to church with me? And he's like, I, why would I go to church with you? Come. She gets saved as this new identity. Born again, still going to reading the Bible, studying the Bible. And then God spoke to her. And in her testimony, she tells how it became so clear to her what it meant to be made in the image of God, to bear his image. And it reminded me, it reminded me of what Paul said in Ephesians. When he says to the believer, I want you to know, I'm praying for you, that you will know what is the hope of your God. I want, I am praying for you that you might know what are the riches, the glory of the riches of the inheritance of Christ. And I'm praying that you may know the power of his resurrection. Now, I'm not an expert on any of these psychological issues. I'm not even going to pretend to be able to understand the discomfort that the general, almost like self-hatred a person might have to the body that they have been given by God. 
I do not understand that. I don't claim to. But in the midst of our societal chaos, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst, watch this now, of how in Nehemiah's day, the children were being taught a different language. They could not speak the language of God. They could not speak the language of God's people. They were only raised to speak the language of the ungodly, the unbeliever. That was the only tongue they were conversant in. But God is greater. And he is able to turn the curse into a blessing. The challenge for me is that not only are my sins able to be forgiven because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as Paul would write, he was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our, of our justification on, the, on, the, on account of our justification. God was satisfied with the sacrifice Jesus made. We know it because he was raised from the dead. But our life, the life we were supposed to live, we were intended to live, is now livable by the power of the resurrection. Peter would write, you're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spot, who through him believe in God and raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our life is not meaningless. Our life is not insignificant. Our life is not without purpose. The last thing that I think about when I think about those three words, he is risen. It's not just that our sins are forgivable. It's not just that this life now is livable. It's also that our death is now approachable. What I I mean by that? Well, we use the word approachable when we describe something. We describe someone, we say, oh, he's very approachable. He's very approachable. What do we mean by that? I mean that, that that person is not someone we need to be afraid of. Somebody who's approachable is someone we're not really afraid of. We're not really afraid anymore of this person because there's something about them that's disarmed. For me to live is Christ, Paul says. To die is gain. The power to live the life that God has called me to live is also the power that will enable me to face the death that I must die. Now, unless the Lord comes back, which like every saint is their blessed hope. Unless the Lord comes back, that reality is going to be every one of ours in this room, whether you are 20 years old or 90 years old. The fact is that we are going to be approaching death. 
but how will we approach it? Is death approachable or is it something that terrifies us? I think we've seen a lot of terror of death over the last couple of years. We've seen a lot of people terrified of death. And that's not to say we shouldn't take care of our bodies and do all that. I know all the clauses and provisos and all those things. But the fact remains is that when there is nothing but this life, death is terrifying. When there's nothing beyond the grave, death is the worst possible outcome. Because all your hopes, all your dreams, all your aspirations, all the things you hope to accomplish are limited by this existence. And if you die, that's it. And that's terrifying for the vast majority of Americans. But it shouldn't have have the same terror it does for them as it should for us as believers. Paul would write, we are confident, yes, well-pleased, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. I'm not sure I can say that. It's much better to be with the Lord. It is, amen. But sometimes this old life, it just kind of gets in the way. Places to go, things to do, people to see. We're not so pleased at the prospect of our passing. There's a cemetery in Hackensack. And it's one of the oldest cemeteries in Bergen County. Uh, It's one of the... uh, first cemeteries the Dutch settlers uh, used when they settled that area of New Jersey back in the 1600s. And there are tombstones that go back to that time period. You know, most of them, it's hard to read anymore what's left there because of age and weather. They've just become almost indecipherable. There are several, many from the 19th century, particularly that you can still read. And there was one there that I always would pass by because I worked in Hackensack and I would I know it sounds a little weird. I'd have my lunch sometimes in, in the cemetery, you know, good company, uh, eating there. No one, no one talks back. I can talk to them, you know. And in this cemetery, there was this one tombstone, in it, and on it said these words. Pause and see as you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare for death and follow me. That's a very common one, by the way. It was a very common tombstone epitaph that was put on many tombstones. It's not, it, I've seen it in other places and I've read about it in other places. It's a very common one. But somebody got very pithy and wrote a reply. Pass, pause and see as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare for death and follow me. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went.
And you see, that's really right, the issue. Because where we go after we die is a matter of eternal significance. Yes, we will all, unless the Lord comes back, we will all die. The question is, what happens one minute after that? What happens one second after that? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And you see, when we think about the temptation to spiritual drift, we think about the circumstances that surround the people in Nehemiah's day, the people in Malachi's day, the Lord's people in our day, the, the, the ability to live our lives well in light of eternity is found is built upon the foundation of those three words. He is risen. He is risen. And when we have those as our assurance, as our foundation, not only are our sins forgivable, not only is our life livable, not only is death approachable, but our eternity is now securable. It's not left open. It's not uncertain. Death becomes a shadow. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's lost its teeth. It's lost its fangs. It's lost its bite. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus Lord. We started this meditation with the idea of what three words would make a difference. What three words would matter? And the idea that the words, I love you, are, are good candidates. But it is absolutely contingent on who says those three words. And when God spoke to us, those three words, he didn't just say those words. He demonstrated them. It's as though he wrote those words in blood and on an empty tomb. Josh McTowell writes, because of the resurrection, we are destined to live forever in new bodies, on a new earth, and an existence that will be so enjoyable that anything we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that God will give us later. For we wait anxiously for that day when God will give us our full rights as his children, including the new bodies he has promised us. With a belief in the resurrection, we can face life's difficulties with the conviction that no matter what, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? 
we can be assured that God has not lost control and will not abandon us. We can be confident that he's not punishing us or condemning us. And we can know that he still very much loves us. What does those three words mean to you? He is risen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to meditate in your word, to meditate on your scriptures. And we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would give us the insight into the significance of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection to live our lives the way you've called us to live. We thank you that that power is able to transform lives, to bring people back from as it were, a, a, a grave to set prisoners free. Lord, we confess that we are so prone to drift. And there are so many pressures on us and so many pressures on our children and so many pressures on our grandchildren. We would despair apart from the hope of our calling. We would give up if it were not for the riches of the glory of your grace. We would have no ability to stand if it were not for the power of the resurrection. And so, Lord, as we think about Malachi, as we think about Nehemiah, as we think about the, the, the life that we are called to live in our day, where there is compromise and where there is confusion, we pray that you might help us to trust you to believe to know those things we thank you that you love us lord we thank you that you never abandon us we thank you that nothing can separate us from your love and we pray as we go forth into this week your spirit might continue to strengthen and uphold us as we seek to walk by faith we pray this in jesus name amen